Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today... We bring you the latest news from the front lines as Ukraine warns of an impending Russian assault in the east. We update on global political news. And we discuss F-16s, British minehunter vessels, and how the war may evolve in 2024. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's gonna break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 5th of January. One year and 315 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our assistant comment editor, Francis Sternley, foreign reporter, Maidna Nani, and former tank commander and Telegraph contributor, Hamish de Bratton-Gordon. I started by summarising the latest news from Ukraine. Let's start with an important story from our Brussels correspondent, Joe Barnes, who writes that Ukrainian military intelligence units believe Russia is preparing to launch a renewed offensive near Kharkiv in the east of the country and is stepping up its bombardment of the region. Moscow's forces struck the city and 15 surrounding settlements with missiles, artillery and mortars on Thursday, according to local officials. Targets included both civilian buildings and military positions, and, as said, it's what's seen as preparation for a larger-scale offensive in the coming weeks, a source close to Ukraine's armed forces said. Kiev has not released details of the attacks, but late on Wednesday, the source said, pre-attack bombardments have been carried out all day at military sites across the region. Local military intelligence units believe Russian forces could be plotting to further ramp up aerial attacks this weekend to coincide with Orthodox Christmas, celebrated on January 7th. The ground offensive could follow shortly afterwards, with January 15th mooted as its possible start date, a source added. Just some broader context here, both Russian and Ukrainian forces have been jostling for better positions across the front line that straddles the villages of Kupiansk, that's on the Oskil River, Sivatovy and Krimina to the southeast and south of Kupiansk, close to the border of the Kharkiv region. I would just say 
at this point to listeners, maybe do grab a map of Donbass just to see exactly where we're talking about. It's quite hard to paint a picture with just words. So we're talking about Kupiansk, then Sovetovy and Krimina to the south and southeast. Moscow has concentrated its resources in this area in a bid to push towards the Ukrainian-held towns of Krimina and Lyman, which, remember, were both occupied by Russian forces until the lightning counteroffensive in September 2022. Western analysts, and we'll come to what the British MOD say later, say that there have been little changes in the front lines, which have remained largely static, with Russian forces launching sporadic attacks. So what's been happening on the ground? Well, Ukraine's general staff said that its forces had repelled three Russian attacks in the direction of Kupiansk. This is in a statement published on social media on Thursday. In the Lehman direction, the enemy did not conduct offensive actions, the statement added. But Colonel General Oleksandr Sersky, the head of Ukraine's ground forces, has warned that Russian forces are conducting glide bomb strikes while regrouping for another assault on Lehman. He said, daily assaults by Russian troops continue near the settlement of Sinkivka to create a bridgehead and further advance on the city of Kupiansk. Moscow has transported more armoured vehicles and artillery pieces to support the attempted advances of infantry groups made up mainly of so-called Stormzed penal military units, Colonel General Sersky added. Russian forces in the area have also been bolstered by better-trained reserves brought in from elsewhere across the front lines. Ukrainian officials have spent months preparing for an anticipated offensive in the direction of Kupiansk, where only a fraction of its original 26,000 population remains. Military commanders in the northeast of Ukraine have described the area as one of the hottest, even when Kiev's forces were attempting a summer counteroffensive in the south. The town, if captured by Russian forces, could serve as an important logistical springboard for offensive pushes further south or west. Meanwhile, Moscow has, as discussed, increasingly targeted central Kharkiv, a city that it failed to occupy at the start of its invasion in February 2022. Just to remind ourselves, Ukraine's second largest city, Kharkiv, has been subject to almost daily ballistic missile attacks, with residential buildings and a five-star hotel frequented by journalists and aid workers among the targets. One resident of the city, which is, again to remind ourselves, around 20 miles from the Russian border, described the shelling as having got a lot worse since the start of the year. Overnight on Thursday, Russia launched two S-300 missiles against civilian targets, according to Ole Snehubov, the regional governor. The day before, Russian forces struck Kharkiv with Iskander missiles, killing two people and injuring more than 60 more. While Ukrainian air defence units are believed to be stationed in the Kharkiv region, they are almost entirely defenceless against S-300 attacks. The surface-to-air missiles have been reprogrammed for ground strikes, and because of the speed at which the projectiles travel across short distances, they are almost impossible to intercept. The enemy uses chaotic shelling in order to maintain tension and actually terrorise our local population, Mr. Snehubov wrote on Telegram. In other news, Kiev said that Russia had attacked Ukraine with nearly 30 Iranian-designed attack drones overnight, but 21 of them had been downed. Russia's defence ministry claimed it repelled a Ukrainian attack over, over occupied Crimea on the same day, shooting down 36 drones over the annexed peninsula. Another Ukrainian drone over Russia's western Krasnodar region was destroyed, the ministry added. Meanwhile, Russia's border city of Belgorod was targeted by another round of Ukrainian shelling overnight, hours after local schools were ordered to extend their holiday closures because of the risk of further attacks. Vyacheslav Gladkov, the local governor, said that at least two people were wounded in the latest shelling, as Telegram channels circulated what appeared to be images of damaged cars in the area. Bringing all of this together then, I think the British MOD gives a decent broad summary of the current shape of operations, certainly from a Western intelligent perspective. They write in their daily summary, Over the last week, ground combat has continued to be characterised by either a static front line or very gradual local Russian advances in key sectors. In the north, near Kupiansk, Russia's western group of forces continue to conduct a large-scale but inconclusive offensive operation. 
in northern Donetsk Oblast, Ukraine has maintained a stable front line in the face of small-scale Russian attacks around Bakhmut. In central Donetsk, Avdivka is still heavily contested, while Russian forces have consolidated late December 2023 gains around Marinka, which saw them finally advance to the western edge of the town after nine years of combat in the area. In southern Ukraine, Russian airborne forces have highly likely made minimal progress in a renewed attempt to dislodge the Ukrainian bridgehead on the eastern bank of the Dnipro, around the village of Krinky. So I realise that's a lot of names, a lot of different actions happening across the front line. So I would recommend to listeners, just go to Google Maps, get a map out and just plot together some of these assaults, where the Ukrainians are defending, where the Russians are on the move, um, and you'll get a much better picture, I think. But let's go now to our foreign reporter, Maidna Nani. Maidna, what stories have you been looking at on the live blog? Probably the biggest story of this morning is uh, Podolyak, who is a, an advisor to Zelensky, has said that Russia has struck Ukraine with missiles supplied by North Korea. And in quite a lengthy post on X, he said, the masks are completely off. And he said the Moscow regime is no longer concealing its intentions. Now, these comments come just as the governor of Kharkiv said on Friday that it had been hit with non-Russian made missiles. And in a statement which is carried by Ukraine's public broadcaster, he said that we are conducting all the necessary examinations, but he can say that the markings have been erased from the missiles and that he can see that the country in which they're produced is not the Russian Federation. And this is all very interesting and timely because... Uh, Last night, John Kirby, who, as you'll know, is the US national security spokesman, said that Moscow had been using North Korean projectiles to attack Ukraine. Uh, And he said that ballistic missiles with ranges of around 550 miles had been fired by Russian forces. And he cited two separate assaults within the past week. And now he called this a significant and concerning escalation. And the UK has also condemned Russia's decision to use ballistic missiles sourced from North Korea in attacks against Ukraine. Of course, Moscow and North Korea have always denied conducting any arms deals. Um, But last year, as you'll remember, they did vow to deepen their military relations. So I feel like that's quite a significant development. Absolutely. Thank you, Medna. A couple more stories I think we need to talk about. Can you take us to Nepal? What's happening there? Nepal has now stopped issuing permits for its citizens to work in both Russia and Ukraine until further notice. And this comes after at least 10 Nepali soldiers have been killed while serving in the Russian army. And Nepal has asked Russia to not recruit its citizens and uh, to immediately send all Nepali soldiers back to Nepal and also provide compensation for the families of those soldiers who have died. And I think there's roughly about 200 Nepalese citizens who were estimated to be working in the Russian army, according to their government, and around 100 are reported to be missing. So, yeah, that's quite an interesting development. Absolutely. And just to finish off this section, Medna, would you take us back to Russia? There's been some updates there politically. Ahead of the March election, Russia's National Elections Commission have registered the first two candidates who will compete with Vladimir Putin. Now, of course, this election is... Everyone thinks that Putin is obviously going to win this election. Um, But just before Christmas, actually, uh, there was a rejection of a candidate. So the fact that these two candidates have been registered is is somewhat of news. 
Um, and the two candidates are Leonid Slutsky of the National List Liberal Democratic Party and Vladislav Dakonkov of the New People Party. Now, we don't really think that anything significant is going to happen here because neither of them are going to pose a significant challenge to Putin, who, of course, has been president since 2000, as both of their parties are largely supportive of the legislation backed by Putin's party. But what is more interesting is, just before Christmas, they rejected a former TV journalist as a candidate, and they cited errors in her paperwork and spelling, and the Supreme Court then even rejected her appeal against the decision. So yeah, that, that's a small development ahead of the election on the 15th of March. Thank you very much, Maidna, for joining us. Just to note again to listeners that today Maidna Nanu, our foreign reporter, is running the Telegraph's uh, Ukraine live blog. So do get all the latest news there on our website. And I would just say, actually, on your final point there, Maidna, I would recommend In Moscow's Shadows, a podcast from academic Mark Galliotti, who knows Russia back to front. And he talks quite a bit on some of the more recent podcasts about the different candidates who've been either okayed or denied into the Russian presidential election. So In Moscow's Shadows from Mark Galliotti, I would recommend that. Francis Sternley, can I come to you? What's been taking your eyes today? Thanks, David. I want to wrap up my reflections on the strategic picture as we enter 2024. Yesterday, I sought to summarise the military picture and the day before that, the political positioning of President Zelensky and Putin. Today, I want to zoom out yet further, trying to synthesise both and compare where we are now with where we were a year ago. So in the first episode of 2023, I summarised the strategic position as I saw it of both Ukraine and Russia. And I argued that we were in a war of attrition, a battle of patience and resources measured in manpower, morale and munitions. I argued that it was in the interest of neither side caught in a struggle for advantage to pursue negotiations because both were pursuing total victory as they defined it, or the strongest possible negotiating position. Until something fundamentally changed on the battlefield or on the political space, I didn't foresee this war ending anytime soon. I concluded by saying that these fundamental changes could take several forms if they were to occur. A hugely successful Ukrainian counteroffensive and subsequent Russian collapse, for instance, or a serious crack in Western support for Ukraine, which seeks to force Kyiv to agree to a ceasefire. One year on, I think it remains too early to say whether there has been a fundamental change in that strategic position, though it would appear that we are closer to that crack in Western support that I said was a danger. Though it is not impossible, and this is important to emphasise, that the deficit in support may correct itself as people wake up to the consequences of reduced support. Hence why I believe it is too early to say whether there has been that decisive shift one way or another. On the question of whether it is in the interest of either side to pursue negotiations because both are pursuing that victory, I think the point remains true but for different reasons and with important caveats. For Ukraine, there has been a growing consensus over the past two years from a more flexible opening position, it has to be remembered, 
that they are now in a battle for their very survival and thus any negotiations would be to their disadvantage, buying Russia time to renew its assaults and because they would reduce the likelihood of of Kyiv receiving vital weapons support from the West because the West wouldn't want to imperil any negotiations. Now for Russia, I think it remains true that they don't want to negotiate an end to the war. But that is a different question to whether they want to enter negotiations for the reasons that I just mentioned. It would now be strategically advantageous to them as it would likely restrict Ukrainian access to weaponry. Though I firmly believe that Putin would have little to no incentive to sign any deal that would feasibly be on the table. As discussed this week, because this war has been allowed to drag on, Russian society has been put onto a war footing with numerous advantages for Putin. Plus, if he believes that the long-term military picture may be even more favourable to him, especially if there is the perception that the US could withdraw support, then it's extremely unlikely that he would now want to talk seriously. That is a change from where we were following those highly successful counteroffensives in 2022. Now, around six months later from January 2023, in our special Q&A episode, I proposed that a longer attritional war on two fronts remained essential. I argued that paradoxically, a decisive Ukrainian victory in the upcoming counteroffensive could prove fatal for Kyiv because there might be panic amongst the West that could lead to a forced compromise rather than see, say, Russia implode, as many feared. I said thus far, we had one attritional war on the battlefield, but not enough on the second, that economic front against Russia, saying that the failures of the West to isolate Russia and to stop its allies rallying to it, especially China, could still prove the fatal chink in the armour. For unless the country bled severely in the domestic sphere, I couldn't foresee the public growing tired of the war and wanting it stopped in Russia. And neither could I see Putin changing gears. Alas, I think this also remains true today. It's clear now that Russia has not been isolated in the manner many hoped and anticipated, either diplomatically or economically. For me, one of the biggest signifiers of that fact was the way Putin was greeted in the UAE with that full fly past, as James Chris reported for us when he was there, and of course, Moscow's successful meetings with President Xi. As such, I fear that Ukraine's best hope now of a lasting, decisive victory is by grinding Russia down slowly over a much longer period than was necessary or desirable. We may be entering, unfortunately, more of a Soviet-Afghan war scenario. Critically, though, in the shorter term, Ukraine has to survive until the political situation evolves more stably and more favourably, say with a presidential victory for Biden and the Democrats, which would immediately force the Kremlin to make very different calculations. As we've discussed before, the tragedy of Ukraine becoming a partisan issue in the United States cannot be overstated. If support for Kyiv were bipartisan in the way that it is here in Britain and other European countries, Putin would have to be thinking very differently. But this year, he can now play for time. 
But in some other ways, time may not be completely favourable to Moscow. There remain rumours of there being more tension in Russian society than is widely recognised. And of course, a presidential election, even a rigged one, is always bound to bring renewed drama. It's worth remembering, too, that Putin is not a young man. If he were to grow sick or to even keel over, then anyone who's calling for peace now would look extremely foolish indeed. Everything would suddenly change. And it's just always worth bearing that in mind when we are talking about history and processes, because I think many people have fallen into a bit of a trap of thinking that there are inevitabilities now, that processes are in place, historical processes, that mean that there is only one outcome. That is not how history works. And it's just important to remember that and to remember quite how unpredictable this war has been in many ways when one considers how it began. Now, regarding Zelensky, it doesn't appear he will face a presidential election this year, something that does come, too, with risks of his own domestically and internationally. Another challenge I think he will face is how to shift the conversation regarding Ukraine, given that it is likely this misconstrued stalemate narrative will endure. To remain a core focus of the world's attention, he will, I think, need to evolve his messaging, resurrecting some of that innovative campaigning that served him so well in his presidential election and in the early months of the war. It is always dangerous when, say, a journalist knows what someone is going to say before they open their mouth, and he needs to recapture some of that subversive spark. Part of the reason Trump continues to capture the headlines so is that one never knows exactly what he's going to say or how he's going to say it. There is great power in that. So collectively, David, if you take the past three days worth of episodes, I hope that gives listeners a broad zoomed out outline of where we are incorporating a range of different perspectives, though, as ever, very much welcome your comments. If one were to zoom out even further, assessing the past two years historically, it is worth reiterating, I think, that even if an armistice was signed tomorrow that ended the war on the current parameters, um, geographic, I mean, then this war would still, relatively speaking, be a success for Ukraine. Putin sought to decapitate the Ukrainian leadership and seize at least half the country, if not more. He has fundamentally failed in that and has broadly united Europe against him. He claimed he wanted to stop NATO encroachment, but this war has led to the expansion of NATO, with two new countries joining. But, as we've said many times, if one defines victory that way, where Putin invaded a sovereign nation and were able to keep territory via force, that surely could not qualify as a success for Western values in an increasingly dangerous and volatile world. Nor could it lay the groundwork for a lasting peace when measured by the grand sweep of history. As the historian Niall Ferguson wrote and I quoted earlier in the week, it will surely seem extraordinary to future historians that so many can miss just how vital this war is for the future trajectory of the century. Our enemies are watching what unfolds with great interest. But is the collective West... Well, thank you very much, Francis, for sharing your thoughts there. Let's go to our 
guest, um, Telegraph contributor and former tank commander Hamish de Bratton-Gordon. Um, Hamish, thank you so much for joining us. I know there's quite a few things you want to talk about. Let's start with the F-16s. Um, talk about their imminent arrival and what air superiority for Ukraine might mean. Good afternoon, everybody, and Happy New Year. <coughs> At the beginning of this really important year, I think Francis has very well and ably described the sort of political position that we're in. And I, I would just like to focus for a few minutes on, on the military perspective and what might accrue. I would, my opening gambit would be very much, as we discussed before Christmas, where things might go. Obviously, we now know that there's a British election this year, there's an American election. And I still tend to agree with the chief intelligence minister in Poland that by the end of this year, um, if the West hasn't absolutely put its shoulder to the wheel behind Ukraine, NATO and de facto UK could be considering getting involved as well. But I'll just hold that thought because I think on the on the sort of tactical and operational battle, there are things changing and things have changed. And we mentioned the F-16s. In order for success in warfare, in battles, one needs the advantage. And we're generally talking about the advantages in the air, what we call air superiority. Some people will hear the term air parity. Air parity means when nobody nobody really has a significant advantage. Air superiority means when you rule the skies, as we did in the First and Second Gulf War, which allowed us to manoeuvre, gave us freedom of manoeuvre. And, and we in our Challenger 1s and 2s could um, pretty much do what we like unfettered by attack from the air. This is why I think it's very significant that the F-16s are on the horizon. And with quite significant numbers, I think allied with the what is a very effective air defence network that Ukraine has developed, assuming that we keep arming them with missiles, and, and I think you reported yesterday NATO is buying or is buying a thousand Patriot missiles that are proving hugely effective. If this can allow Ukraine air superiority with the F-16s, then that allows other things to happen. I'll just hold the air superiority thought. We then look at maritime superiority. And it has been an amazing operation by the Ukraine maritime forces, Ukraine Navy, which didn't really exist before the war, to clear the Black Sea of the Russian fleet. In effect, Ukraine now has maritime superiority, certainly around their borders and probably around the Crimea. Now, this is very significant. In order to to affect an effective land operation in Ukraine, I and others who, who are looking at Gage, Ukraine must have air and maritime superiority. So those things are a possibility, which is why I think it's very disappointing. And I know somebody wrote about it in the paper yesterday and I wrote about it elsewhere, that because of the Montreux Protocol, Turkey is not allowing the British mine hunters and assault boats to reach Ukraine, where they could be hugely effective. We all we know, and we spoke some time months ago about British Marines have trained Ukrainian Marines, and the Dutch have as well. So they have a Marine force of and Marines are soldiers who operate in the littoral on the coastal areas and on the sea, of about 2,000. Now, that is a potent force. And with the mine hunters and assault boats, 
the maritime superiority could really have an impact on this war. A sort of coup de man operation where those Marines are put behind the Russian defences in Crimea, which would be hugely effective. But without those mine hunters, without those assault boats, Norway is also giving assault boats, that makes life very difficult. We then look at the land war, which, again, I, I won't rehearse the arguments we've already discussed. Uh, we have this vast front that is fairly static at the moment, the huge Russian force, 600,000 dug in, and a slightly smaller but more mobile Ukrainian force. There was a very good piece by Forbes a couple of days ago describing some of the armoured manoeuvre operations around Abtika, which, which gives me some real hope. And there they describe how the Russians are attacking literally on foot. They started off using their armour to attack around Abdika. That got absolutely hammered. Something like four, plus of 400 Russian tanks have been destroyed in that area in the last sort of couple of months. What Ukraine did is they soaked that up. A lot of Russian soldiers were killed in the tens of thousands. And then, as Forbes described, the Bradley M2 vehicles, these are the armoured troop carriers, American ones, which have a have a pretty potent 25 millimeter gun on them, which is very effective against infantry. It has anti-tank guided weapons, very effective against tanks, moving very quickly around the place, supported by leopards, leopard two tanks, the German tank from a distance. And in these attacks around Avdivka in the last month or so, to, to my eye, it looks as though Ukraine really understands this idea of, of armored maneuver operations and have been very successful. So just sort of in summary, if you can put all that together, you have air superiority, you have maritime superiority. The potential that we've been talking about but has not been realised, to me, there is a chance that, given all that, and if Ukraine can mass the right amount of armour, right amount of ammunition, they could make significant progress not necessarily completely take Crimea and completely push the Russians out of the Donbass, but but as Francis was saying earlier on, it, it puts them in a much stronger position and will hopefully persuade those wavering on this side of the pond and the other side of the pond that we must see this through to the end. Otherwise, my opening gambit, we could be involved in this fight by the end of the year or early next year. Hamish, can I ask you, just to pick up on one of your thoughts there, you said if we can put all of these things together and you sketched out where you think that might go, what happens? Because, of course, over the past few months, we've spoken a lot about what you could describe as recalcitrance or the the wavering Western support, the fact that the next US funding for Ukraine hasn't been signed off, all that kind of stuff. So what could you sketch out for us the opposite of that? What if this cannot be knitted together? What if some of it comes and some of it doesn't? What if, it, what if none of it comes? How do you see the, the year potentially unfolding in that scenario? Well, it's, I mean, that, 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 that is the question. In classic sort of Clausewitzian type warfare, clout don't dribble. It was always about you've got to really hit it hard. It's no good sort of rabbit punches around the edges. That's not game prove successful. Really, as we've seen, which is why the air superiority to me is so important. The maritime superiority is so important. So I think to answer your question, if if the ammunition starts running out, if we don't get behind it, 
At the moment, we have a static, I hate to use the word stalemate, because as you've described, lots of things are happening. But if Russia starts to make progress, then I think we go to my original gambit. If Russia starts moving west, then the West has got some very, very difficult decisions to make, which is why I think it is so important that the scenario you're painting does not happen. And that's why I'm concerned. And, and certainly the piece I wrote elsewhere yesterday was very much focused at the Turks. We have a very strong northern flank in NATO with Finland coming in. It looks like Sweden are going to get the nod as well. If I was Putin, I would now be discounting the northern flank. It's too strong. But when I look at the southern flank and the way that Turkey or where the Erdogan, I wouldn't say Turkey, where the Erdogan is sitting so firmly on the face, to me, that, that provides a weak southern flank. And of course, if there is east-west conflict, then the Bosporus is going to become vital ground for the Russians. Uh, and whatever Erdogan might think, I, I, I don't think the Russians would, would spare them. So I, I, I hope that other NATO leaders are really, are really in the sidelines trying to persuade Erdogan that he, that as a NATO member, they must remain strong. If NATO remains strong, and it really is only Turkey that or Erdogan that is wavering here, then it would, I say it would be foolish for Putin to try and advance. But then we've seen a lot of foolishness from Moscow over the last two years. So yeah, I think it would be disastrous to answer your question if Ukraine doesn't get all it needs to prevail. Because Otherwise, you know, old soldiers like myself might be pulling on our tank suits again and driving our tanks towards the guns in Eastern Europe. Just on that subject, Hamish, not wishing to be too morbid, but you do talk to a lot of military folk. I'm just wondering, to use your phrase, when you're going around the bazaars talking to noteworthy individuals, how would you assess the mood in the military community at the moment? Are they in despair at what's going on? Do they have a clear picture of what is required for Ukraine from the West? Or do you still sense that there is perhaps a knowledge gap prevalent in the military fraternity as much as there is in the political and journalistic one? That's a very perceptive question. Uh, and uh, as you say, one does go around the bazaar bazaars and speak to lots of people. I, again, I, I don't. I don't want to sort of give any sort of false hope or or, or trade any um, anybody's confidences. But I think um, I think people are relatively positive. There is an awful lot going on. I think behind the scenes, the intelligence element. To this is key. And we only see some of the, it was only yesterday, one of the key electronic warfare radars that was taken out. And, and we discussed before, before, between Christmas and New Year with Joe Barnes about the EW piece we did, electronic warfare piece we did, and the fact that these key elements have been taken out. The deep battle, as we call it, the shaping operations behind enemy lines is becoming very effective and working. So I think that, I think from a military perspective, certainly from the UK, um, they are only looking at it purely from how the operations could be conducted. Now, if you layer on top of that the political uncertainty, you layer on top of that the logistics challenges that that political uncertainty would create, 
then there is a bit of a wobble. But I, I think you know a lot of the planners, a lot of the people supporting this are assuming that NATO countries, that the US will do the right thing and provide the hardware that, that is required. Now, that is a very simplistic answer to your very perceptive question. So I suppose a long way of saying, I think people are still confident. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. But Ukraine can do the job here. Well, thank you very much, Francis and Hamish, for your time today. Let's go to our final thoughts then. Um, Hamish, we'll come to you last. So Francis Dunley, would you like to start us off? Sure. Well, just a quick one from me. You'll be glad to hear. So we heard earlier how Russia's National Elections Commission has registered those first two candidates who will compete against Putin in the election, but which, of course, Putin is uh, all but certain to win. And Maynard was right in throwing in all of those caveats there uh, about the individuals concerned. I mean, I know that some people will point at the very fact that they're there and will say, well, how can this be a full autocracy when there are people who are rivals for Putin's power that could, in theory, win a president election? And without breaking down all the mechanisms of state power in Russia and all of the electoral fraud and all of that stuff, I just want to stress again the point that Maidner made, which is that both of these candidates' parties are largely supportive in Parliament of legislation backed by Putin's power base, the United Russia Party. I think that's a very revealing point, which tells its own story. And there's often speculation that the existence of these other parties is actually rather cleverly mandated by those that be in power to serve as a means of cleaving off some of the votes, some of the opposition, which might be attracted to other more radical parties, those parties, of course, which have in recent years been banned and their leaders imprisoned. So if you're, say, a moderate young person in Russia who's not particularly pro-Putin and is not going to go the full hog and want to protest on the streets, then you might be drawn to one of these other candidates. And of course, that is helpful from the perspective of Mr. Putin and the Kremlin, because those voters are voting for somebody who has sense is in the same assemblage of the power structure that you've put in place. So just a word of caution, a light one to those who hear this news and think it is indicative perhaps of some kind of change in Russia or that this will come as a surprise to Putin. I think that's exactly what the Kremlin wants you to think. Thank you very much, Francis. And just to repeat to our listeners, uh, Mark Galliotti's podcast in Moscow Shadows talks about this a lot. And I would recommend it to everyone listening if you want a, a sort of <clears throat> fantastic account of how Russian politics works and the day-to-day news analysed by an expert. Hey, Mr. Breton Gordon, would you like to finish? Yes, thanks very much. Lots of people 
have asked me what they can do to help with Ukraine for not necessarily on the military side, but just help support people and show that the grassroots of people in this country and around around Europe absolutely support Ukraine and um, want to enable them to defeat Russia. And there, there are lots of projects going on. Um, Ben Wallace, the previous Defence Secretary, and myself wrote a piece on Christmas Eve about ULES 4x4s to Ukraine, and I see Farmers Weekly have repeated that today. And there are a number of people like James Cameron and others who have been doing this for some time. So I would, if people, and I've done a number of talks, particularly around the Southwest, trying to raise sort of money and 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 the sort of understanding of what's required. But certainly in the sort of farming community and others, and maybe the building community, if you really want to do something that will make a difference, those old four by fours are really very much required and wanted, particularly by those near the front line in Ukraine. So if you do feel that you can do something, then old four by fours, and I believe that uh, Grant Shapps, the current Defence Secretary, will be trying to make sure that they can get passage to Ukraine as quickly as possible. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, a world affairs newsletter which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter, You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Charles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.